0: Hi, welcome to the Rambling Ronnie podcast. This is where I talk about true crime, unsolved mysteries, and interject with any other random things I feel like talking about. Please look for me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram if you want to leave any comments or information you may have on whatever I am discussing. This episode, I will be covering the Dyatlov Pass incident. On February 1st, 1959, nine hikers in Russia, Soviet Union at the time, lay in a tent they set up on the Holotchil Mountain. However, for reasons still unknown today, the nine hikers escaped their tent in a manner that appeared desperate, many of the hikers neglecting essential clothing in their attempt to escape what is still unclear. We will be looking into the people and events surrounding the Dyatlov Pass incident and what theories have been presented. There are still no definitive answers, although in my uneducated opinion, I do not believe in any overtly supernatural or government cover-up theories. We will go into that later. For now, let's start at the beginning. First, I want to disclaim that I have looked up how to pronounce the various names of people and locations in this case. However, I will likely pronounce many Russian words wrong, or I'll try to say them and sound funny, or I'll say them differently each time, and I always feel kind of silly when I try to put on an accent that is not familiar to me, so uh, my apologies in advance. Um, And I'll probably pronounce some English words wrong too, so hopefully that balances out. On January 23, 1959, 10 hikers set out from the Sverdlovsk Ural Polytechnic Institute dorms in Sverdlovsk, Soviet Union at the time. This was formerly the city of Yekaterinburg, which had its name reinstated in 1991. At the time, the school was known as Sverdlovsk Ural Polytechnic Institute, or UPI, but it is now known as Ural State Technical University, or USTU. I will be referring to it as UPI throughout the episode. This was mostly a science and engineering institute. This time period was also a time in the Soviet Union when there was what was considered a thaw, where the repressive regime of the government from before was lifted, and arts, science, and athletics were more acceptable and encouraged. This idea of escapism was popular with young people after experiencing years of living in an oppressive society, and that includes the hikers we will be discussing. These young people were all full of knowledge and ambition, and each had their personalities and individual qualities that made them all the more endearing and admirable. Igor Dyatlov, age 23, was the leader of the group that was set to hike and camp through the Ural Mountains. This trek was planned out in order for the members of the group to reach the requirements to achieve a grade 3 level certification in hiking, For personal validation and achievement, as well as to be certified to teach others as masters of sport. They had to cover 300 kilometers, or 186 miles, of ground, with a third of that in challenging terrain. The minimum duration had to be 16 days, with no fewer than 8 in uninhabited regions, and at least 6 nights spent in a tent being a part of the school's hiking club gave the thrill-seeking students the incentive to push themselves, and through the certification system, their skills and endurance were challenged. I will now describe the hikers so you can hopefully envision each person as an individual and be able to follow the events with a bit more clarity. Igor Dyatlov, age 23. He was well known for his skills and capabilities as a hiker and leader, as well as his technical knowledge. He was said to have come from a family of engineers with his room filled with radio equipment. It is of note that he did not pack a radio on this hike as it would have been a hindrance on this difficult journey. Zenaida Komogorova, age 22, also known as Zena. She was a student of engineering, described as lively and bright. Zena was bit by a viper snake once and was saved when the group she was with came across a family that lived in the forest and were able to provide medicinal herbs. Zina was apologetic to her group for the incident, not wanting to burden the others because of her injury. Lyudmila Dubenina, age 20, said to be an outspoken person, even though she was the youngest of the group. She was a student of construction industry economics and was a serious person. Like Zina... She once had an incident on a hiking trip where she was shot by accident and had to be carried 50 miles in rugged terrain, and she also felt terrible the whole time for having to be carried and slowing everyone down. Next, I will describe the three Yuri's. Yuri Yudin, age 22. He was a geology student. He suffered from rheumatism, a heart condition, and chronic knee and back pain that was diagnosed as sciatica. He was the 10th hiker who had to stop before they entered the more challenging part of the journey due to his health. Yuri Doroshenko, age 21. He studied radio engineering and was said to be impulsive and brave. One time he chased away a bear with just his geologist hammer. Yuri Krivonashenko, or Georgie, age 23. He was a joker and a musician with a big personality and a knack for storytelling. He was a student of construction and hydraulics. Alexander Kolievatov, age 24. A student of nuclear physics, he was a private person and known to have smoked an antique pipe. Rustin Slobyodin, or Rustik, age 23. He was the rich kid of the group, the son of an affluent university professor. He had already earned a degree in mechanical engineering and was also a musician. Nikolai Thibault Brignol, age 23. Nikolai graduated from UPI in 1958 with a degree in civil engineering. He was working as an engineering foreman in construction when he joined the group. Nikolai has a bit of a sad story. His mother was Russian and his father French. His father was accused of being active in the Revolutionary Party and was convicted of crimes against the state. His family was then sent to a camp where Nikolai was born. His father had been sentenced to 10 years of hard labor working in the mines, However, towards the end of his sentence, when Nikolai was only nine years old, his father died. Despite all of this, Nikolai was said to be a warm and cheerful person who looked for the humor in any situation and yet was also serious and very well read. Alexander Zolotraev, or Sasha, age 37. He was the eldest of the crew, tasked as a hiking instructor to join the group. Completing this hike would give him more credentials in order to become an instructor at UPI, and also after completing the hike, he would be able to continue on to go visit his mother. A former soldier of World War II with gold teeth and distinct tattoos, he was a stranger to most of the group except for Igor, whom he was acquainted with. As the group began to know each other, Sasha became a friendly and welcome companion who sang with the group and carried his own weight. Now back to the journey. Their journey began on January twenty third of nineteen fifty nine. The journey began on January twenty third, nineteen fifty nine. By evening of that day, the hikers were on a train headed to their first destination, the town of Sarov. After hours of traveling, they arrived early the next morning on January twenty fourth. Because the next train was not to leave until the afternoon, the hikers had the entire day to try and relax and make the time go by quickly. This is when a bit of a funny anecdote happened. It was early morning hours when they arrived, around 6.30, and disappointingly for the group, the station was locked up tight and they were not allowed in to rest. To lift their spirits, Georgie brought out his mandolin and began playing music right on the platform. With it still being early morning hours, a nearby policeman heard the ruckus and with that took Georgie to a nearby police station. The other hikers followed and watched as he was being scolded about the laws of internal order at a railway station. After being given a warning, Georgie was able to reunite with his friends. The group continued through the town, trying to figure out what they should do for the time being. They then came across an elementary school. They shared stories with the students and allowed them to look at all their equipment and items that they had for their trip. The students were delighted and were actually quite sad and disappointed when the hikers had to leave, especially Zena. They seemed to really be attached to her. After they had their rest and their time at the elementary school, they then boarded the train and headed to a town called Ivdel and arrived around midnight. There were no rules about sleeping at the train station here, so the group rested undisturbed until morning. When morning arrived on January 25th, the hikers took a bus to a village called Vige. They arrived around 2 p.m. and spent the night at a hotel. The next day, they left Vigée in the back of an open truck. This was a very cold three-hour trip that brought them to a lodging settlement called the 41st Quarter. Here, they were given a room at the local hostel. This would be the last inhabited town for the hikers. From there, they were to head to an uninhabited mining camp called Second North. The 41st Quarter to Second North was 15 miles. After having a late start on the 27th of January, the group finally arrived at the Second North by 11 p.m., before leaving, Yuri Yudin had decided that he could not participate in the rest of the hike because his sciatica was causing him an incredible amount of pain and he did not want to slow the group down. So Yuri went with the group to the 2nd North to collect rock and mineral samples and then went back with the driver who dropped the group off. From this point forward, all accounts of their journey are surmised from their diaries and photos. That is, until they reached their final campsite on February 1st, located at Halacho Mountain, or Dead Mountain. The group was expected to be back by February 13th. With the expectation that they might be late due to reported heavy snowfall in the area, there was not a huge concern. However, as the days went on, the families of the hikers became more and more worried to the point where they became vocal and put pressure on the UPI to investigate. By February 20th, a search party was launched to search for the hikers. This consisted of UPI students, instructors, experienced outdoorsmen, and a few of the local Monzi people. On February 21st, a plane with supplies circles the area where the Dyatlov group is presumed to be, but finds nothing. By February 26th, search after search, finally the campsite was found. Multiple search groups were formed and dispatched to the area to do their best to try to find the missing hikers. Boris Lavstov, 22 years old in his third-year studies and member of the hiking club, as well as a friend of Igor, was searching with fellow club member and classmate Mikhail Sherovin. These were the two searchers who found the campsite. As they approached the tent, they could see ski poles sticking up vertically with the south entrance standing. Recent snowfall covered the tent and caused it to collapse. There were no bodies in the tent or immediate area. This gave the searchers brief hope that perhaps they were still alive somewhere. With the day getting to be late and the weather continually less ideal, the duo grabbed a number of the items from the tent, including a camera, and headed back to their own camp. In the following days, more teams arrived to assist with the search. As more people participated and continued with the search, there was more activity in the area that would become the scene of the incident, or crime scene as some people believe. They went hard searching around the tent before the lead investigator arrived, so there was already a level of compromise to the area that could not be rectified. When the lead investigator did arrive, he came with search dogs hoping to be able to find tracks from the hikers. As they began searching with the dogs, they found a clue about 18 meters, or 60 feet, from the tent. Multiple sets of preserved footprints were found in the snow Nine sets were found in various shapes and forms, indicative of shoed and shoeless feet leading for 0.8 kilometers, or half a mile. As they followed the prints, they noticed the footprints split into two paths that went into a valley and came back together again. Beneath a tree, burnt wood was noticed. As they investigated the area, searchers then found the bodies of Georgi Krivonishenko and Yuri Doroshenko. There were clear oddities with the scene, including the appearance of several people having been in that location because of trampled snow. Near the bodies were what appeared to be a campfire with several partially burned logs. Throughout the area were random pieces of clothing and noticeable small trees with branches cut off. Georgie and Yuri were found. Both were not wearing pants, nor jackets. One was wearing a checkered shirt and a pair of swim trunks under long underwear. The right leg of the long underwear remains. The other is torn off. His feet are bare with snow between the toes. The other is wearing an undershirt, a checkered shirt, long underwear, briefs, and socks. But the clothing on both are shredded. From there, Igor was found buried in the snow wearing a sweater over a checkered shirt, a fur vest, and ski pants. He was shoeless, wearing only a pair of mismatching socks. He was laying on his back, clinging to a piece of birch tree. Then Zina was found, also buried in the snow. She was laying on her right side, facing down with her arms twisted beneath her. She is wearing a hat, ski jacket, and ski pants. Like Igor, no shoes and only socks. As bodies were being found, messages were being sent back and forth through radiograms. These are quotes from the radiogram exchanges made by the group hiking advisor who was helping with the search, Evgeny Maslenikov as well as various members of the search team and a committee secretary with the name Zostrovsky. Here are some of the messages. We didn't have time to examine the tent. Probably they were buried under heavy snow. The tent got torn, people stood up, and were swept away downhill by wind. Next. In 16 hours, four bodies found in different places, and they are scarcely dressed and barefoot, which leads us to believe they were swept by a storm. Next. Why were things left in the tent if people were swept away by wind? This last question is one that continues to be a point of contention with so many theories. The four bodies that were found were wrapped in tarp and stored near the mountain while the investigation continued. Another radiogram from Maslenikov described what is still a question today. Why the whole group left tent half-dressed, we don't know yet absolutely no notion. As the first four bodies were found, news came back to families and friends of the hikers. People were upset and wanted answers, understandably. This is where I will say I am not going to entertain any Monzi theories, as a forester named Ivan Rumpel dispelled any speculation with noting that the Monzi are hospitable and that the hikers were not near any sacred tribal land if that is enough justification for the Monsi to kill the hikers in such a fashion. It is an easy place to lay blame for outsiders, but consider how logical this explanation would be. Not logical at all. This is also with the consideration that when one Monsi hunter named Andrei Anyamov was questioned, he said, There's no sacred mountain in our hunting places. But now the Monsi don't visit sacred mountains. The youth don't pray at all, and alders pray at home. There was no physical evidence to give any indication of any Monzi people having anything to do with the situation, and with all interviews and accounts, there's no way these peaceful people would do something so extreme to cause the deaths of these people. The searchers at this point have given up hope of finding any survivors. There were still five bodies to search for, a daunting task of searching through an area of 30,000 square yards with probes, Shoulder to shoulder, 30 men stepped forth and probed through the snow until they reached an area where the probes failed to reach ground. Under this area was a ravine that was approximately 4.5 meters or 15 feet deep. Upon notifying officials in Ivedal about the discovery of the ravine, a radiogram was sent back suggesting sending miners with metal detectors to the mountains. Yevgeny Maslenikov replied to the radiogram with, Miners need probes rather than metal detectors, as people under snow don't have metal things. <laughs> um, however, he was ignored, and a team of miners showed up with metal detectors. After wasting a day or two of sweeping the ground with the detectors, they traded their detectors for probes. Lev Ivanov arrived on the scene to assist. Because of the discovery of the bodies and first works, Lev Ivanov arrives on the scene to assist because of the discovery of the bodies, and first works on familiarizing himself with all the locations. He does not find anything of too much note at Igor and Zina's locations, but where Georgi and Yuri were found, he made some interesting observations. Examining the larger cedar tree and surrounding area, he noted that the charred branches in the fire pit could not have been burning for more than two hours. Based on broken branches he saw nearby, he also concluded that someone must have climbed a tree and had fallen in the process of cutting branches. I also read somewhere that there is speculation that they may have climbed the tree and have also been looking for or trying to look for the tent, but it does make more sense that they climbed the tree to maybe get some more branches, perhaps. Um, He believed at least another person was at the location with the two men based on the footprints and that the wooden twigs were gathered to make a fire. But why did the fire go out? Why were not more of the gathered wood and twigs not utilized? Now Ivanov examines the hikers camp. The tent is damaged with multiple tears, but is still relatively intact on the open slope. Various scenarios were speculated, but no definitive answers could be determined. As the days went on, UPI students assisting with the search went back to college after already missing many days. As much as they cared about their fellow students and finding them, many of the students were exhausted and did not want to fall far behind in class. Various radiograms continued to be sent back and forth as Maslenikov continued searching with the other searchers who remained. Any hope that the last five survived was completely snuffed out at this point. The Dyatlov Group's storage shelter was found, where they had built it near the Ospia River. Everything was as it would be expected with a storage shelter, meant to be ready for their return trip. All searchers could conclude at this point was that the hikers clearly did everything properly and were dedicated to maintaining proper protocol. Something happened after they set up their tent, and Lev Ivanov headed back to Sverdlovsk to investigate from there. With him were the bodies of the four hikers already found, who were to undergo autopsies. Many radiograms were sent back and forth through Meslenikov, and some with his speculation on what could have possibly happened, Here are a series of radiograms throughout his time searching that really stand out. 1. Maybe someone who was dressed went outside to take a leak and was swept away. His cry made others jump out of the tent and they were swept off too. Tent is set in most dangerous point with strongest wind, impossible to go 50 meters back uphill as tent was torn. Those who were below could command to go to forest on slope toward Ospia where the forest is near. Maybe they wanted to find their previous camp. Slope is rocky and two to three times farther from forest. They made a fire. As Yatlov and Kolmogorova were better dressed, they went back to look for the tent with their clothes. Lacking strength, they fell. 2. March 2nd Would like to ask if any new type of meteorological rocket probe flew over Incident Place on the evening of February 1st. 3. But the main mystery is why the whole group fled the tent. The only thing found outside the tent besides the ice pick is a Chinese torch on the tent roof. This proves one fully dressed person went outside and gave some signal to others not to flee the tent at once. 4. Clarifying the rocket probes. One possible reason is some natural phenomenon or passage of meteorological rocket probe, which was seen on February 1st by Yves Del and by Carolyn's group on February 17th. The Carolyn's group is referring to a separate hiking group that was led by Vladislav Karolin, who was also amongst the search volunteers. His group set out, on Feb- His group set out in February, following along the Dyatlov group's path along the river. As they traveled on the morning of February 17th, they saw a light spot that grew larger and moved from northeast to southwest and down and lasted over just a minute. They supposed that it was a large meteorite and Meslenikov wondered if there was something similar that could have caused the hikers to leave their tent without shoes. As time went on, the mystery only deepens. By now it is March 5th, 1959 and a few volunteers decided to probe in an unexpected area about a thousand yards from the site of the hiker's tent. There, they found a body. It was Rustik Slovenin. He was found laying face down with his right leg beneath him and his right fist pulled to his chest. He was wearing a checkered shirt, a sweater, ski pants, several pairs of socks, and a single shoe. He was also wearing a ski cap. The ski cap seemed strange the fact that it was still secured to his head was unusual considering the theory so far was that the wind swept the hikers down the mountainside. Rustique laid about halfway between where Igor and Zina were found, and they were in line with the tent. The way Rustique was positioned, it was speculated that he may have been headed towards the tent. Rustique's body was moved to be transported, and the searchers now had to focus on finding the last four bodies. Sadly, this would not happen until May. As the search continued between March and May, investigation was ongoing into what happened to the hikers that night. The tent was brought to Yvedel and was set up in order to be looked at more closely. Coincidentally, a professional tailor was brought to the office to make new uniforms for the officers, and she was asked to have a look at the damaged tent. After examining the cuts to the back of the tent, she concluded that it looked like a deliberate slash. They consulted with a scientific officer and criminal expert named G. Shurinka, who concluded that the tears were cuts and ones that were made from the inside of the tent. There were three different cuts, and with these being done from the inside, it was clear that the hikers were escaping in a panic. Igor, Zina, Georgi, and Yuri Joroshenko had autopsies performed on March 4th and Rustique on March 11th the results concluded that the hikers had all died from hypothermia. This was no surprise, yet still did not help with wondering what circumstances led them to die in this way. Meanwhile, searchers had continued to look in the area where the bodies were found. Battling squall winds, deep snow, and limited visibility due to the weather, the search seemed to be going nowhere and, as mentioned, would not make headway until May. Yuri Yudin was given the difficult task of sorting through the materials found in the tent and attaching each article to each hiker. After sorting through all the personal items and reminiscing about his friends, Yuri then was flown back to Sverdlovsk in a helicopter. This ride was shared with a woman who was transporting some of the hiker's organs. Many people who hear a vague overview of the case can give Yuri a side eye. However, he went through so much trauma himself in the aftermath of the incident and continued for years to have this case haunt him. I feel for him and the families very much during this time. For the families, the government seemed to be doing the most it could to keep the case quiet. Officials wanted to bury the bodies in the mountain where they were found. However, families pushed back and finally were given permission to have the bodies brought back to Sverdlovsk to be buried. The condition was that there had to be two separate funerals and the bodies had to be transported to the cemetery by a specific route that would not cross paths with the UPI campus. Essentially, no publicity, please. It was the second week of March, ten days after the first bodies were discovered, and Igor, Zina, Georgi, Yuri, and Rustik were officially laid to rest. On May 3rd, Monsi searcher Stepan Kirikov discovered some branches that looked unusual under the snow in a ravine near the big cedar tree. It looked as though these branches had been cut with a knife, The area was then probed, continuing in the area until articles of clothing began to appear. These were abandoned pieces of clothing, and they all looked cut or shredded. This included a grey woolen vest turned inside out, knitted trousers, a brown woolen sweater with lilac thread, a right trouser leg, and a bandage one yard long. They dug more, revealing more clothing, black cotton sports pants with the right leg missing, and half of a woman's sweater. I think it's pretty easy to presume that having all of the scattered clothing is indicative of the paradoxical undressing that happens when people are suffering from hypothermia potentially. Um, So that's all I can think of when I, when I read that and uh, it's just really sad on May 4th, they finally found a body. They could tell it was a man, but could not tell who it was due to decomposition of the face. The man was wearing a grey sweater with two wristwatches. They then uncovered three more bodies nearby. They were able to identify Ludmilia. She wore a cap, a yellow undershirt, two sweaters, brown ski trousers, and two socks on one foot, the other foot being wrapped in a torn sweater. Her head is pointed upstream, while the three men are positioned towards the center of the stream. Two of the men are found embracing. It appears that they were likely trying to keep each other warm. The bodies had been lying in melting snow and creek water, and so were at various stages of decay. This includes the flesh that was lying in the water. It was exposed to the microbes that caused some spots to decay more than others. On May 8th, four days after the body's discoveries, they were finally flown to Ivdel for a forensic examination. Alexander Kolotov was concluded to have died from hypothermia. The other three had more unusual and different results compared to the other six hikers. Sasha Zolotayev was found to have had serious injury in his chest on the right side, having five fractured ribs that resulted in severe hemorrhaging. For Nikolai Thibaut Brignol, he was found to have fractures on his head with abundant hemorrhaging. Yudmilia Dubinina had a massive thoracic damage with internal hemorrhaging, including her right heart ventricle and nine fractures to her ribs. Her tongue was missing as well. The reports did nothing but cause more confusion and gave way to add more fire to the conspiracy aspect of the case. Even so, the autopsies were performed and on May 22nd, the last of the hikers were laid to rest. To this day, we only have theories that will likely never have any definitive answers. I will now briefly go over some of the theories out there and I will then follow up with what conclusion Donnie Icar presents in his book. Donnie puts so much time and effort into meeting and talking to people throughout the world, even going to the Halachal Mountain, and with all the detail he has in his book, I cannot help but be convinced. You can take this information and go get the book yourself and see what seems to make the most sense to you. Again, I'm not an expert. There's a lot of theories. There's a lot of different books on this subject. There's a lot of web pages, so take your time to go through if you're interested and try to think of what's what makes the most logical sense. I think it's uh, I think it's just a bunch of circumstances that really suck and ended up leading to this misfortune. So for an avalanche, there's no records of an avalanche occurring on the Halachal mountain, at least not in the years since the incident. The tent was also much too secure and intact for an avalanche to have been the cause of the hikers leaving their shelter. Remember there was ski poles still sticking up in the ground, even if the actual tarp of the tent was not uh, completely standing. So high winds, Forester Ivan Rumpel, who remember was the one who gave us more insight into the Monzi people. He had shared stories of locals being swept away on this mountain from high winds. And this was initially seriously considered to be the hiker's fate. However, there's still not enough substantial evidence. Why is the tent intact again? Like why is, or why are the ski poles still standing up? Um, and why would they leave their structure Uh, to go into the winds. If someone left the tent to go to the bathroom, for example, and the group heard the person get swept away by the winds, why would they all leave without clothing to help their group member? Aside from that, weather analysis for that time indicates that yes, winds would have been strong, but not strong enough to be a hurricane force. Armed men. No. Cuts were made to the inside of the tent, which yes, shows that they are trying to escape Um, but then when you look outside of the tent, there was only nine footprints that belonged to the hikers and any possible missing items belonging to the hikers generally turned out to be mistakenly catalogued or food or alcohol that might've been missing were consumed by volunteers. Now the injuries of the hikers, the context of these injuries cannot be understated The three hikers with violent injuries all had fallen down approximately 24 feet into a ravine with rocks at the bottom, likely tumbling in pitch black darkness. Fatalities due to falls can happen after a height of 10 feet. So for these hikers whose bodies were likely already suffering the effects of hypothermia, they then fall over 20 feet into a ravine. It is not a stretch to comprehend the association of that with the injuries. Weapons testing. Lev Ivanov speculated that orb sightings in February were connected to the hikers' deaths. With the Cold War going on, classified rocket launches would not have been unusual, and there had been tests done in February and March of that year. However, there was no evidence of unusual sightings on the night of February 1st and 2nd. The accounts that have been perpetuated are from weeks after, and so there can be no valid reason to believe that this is what caused the hikers to flee the tent. Radiation on clothing There is discussion of radiation being found on some of the hikers' clothing, but it is something I do not care to get into that deeply. From Dead Mountain, Donnie Eicher describes how he submitted the clothing test results to Dr. Christopher Strauss, an associate professor of radiology at the University of Chicago Medical Center. His conclusion was that by today's understanding of radiation levels, the particle decays were nowhere near an abnormal range. They would have had to be 50 to 100 times higher to be considered dangerous or alarmingly abnormal. A possible explanation could be that radiation from nuclear tests conducted 850 miles north of the hiker's location could have made its way through the atmosphere and water cycles to end up on the hiker's clothing. So dark orange color of the hiker's skin. This is just tan or severe sunburn occurring before the bodies were buried under the snow. Now the theory of aliens, etc. Again, there's just nothing to back that up. What can support the idea that, as one searcher wrote in his diary, the hikers leaving their tent the way they did was behavior of lunatics? So, infrasound Carmen Vortex Street. Johnny Eicher consults with professionals who study atmospheric sciences who are experts in their field. Looking at the top of Mount Halachal, it looked to have a nice, smooth, symmetrical dome that, with the proximity of the hiker's tent, could create perfect conditions for infrasound and Karman vortex street effects. Infrasound describes a low-frequency noise that generally cannot be heard, but can stimulate the ear follicles and cause anxiety, illness, unsettling feelings, and even lead some to the point of suicide, if strong and consistent enough. Quote, Carmen Street Vortex, named after Hungarian physicist Theodor von Karman, is an occurrence in fluid dynamics of both liquids and gases. In the aerodynamics of weather phenomena... Air vortices, or small tornadoes, are created when wind of a certain speed hits a blunt object of a particular shape and size. Geographic masses around the world are known to cause this particular pattern of vortices. These are oftentimes accompanied by the twin danger of infrasonic frequencies to create the ideal conditions for Karman Vortex Street. The object has to be of a certain symmetry and smoothness. With the winds being of high velocity, sounds emanated from the mountains at times that sounded like loud animals or human moans. It is frightening, and being in the midst of the howling winds and feeling vibrations and the infrasound causing a real feeling of fear and anxiety, it is not a stretch to consider these occurrences as potential reason for the hikers fleeing their tent. Donnie Eicher has a chapter that is his supposition of what the last day of the hikers may have consisted of based on the diary entries and all the information he has gathered in his research. Please, if you are really interested and really want to learn more and, um, see what Donnie's theory is, uh, please purchase the book. It is under $20 on Amazon. Um, it's called Dead Mountain Donnie Icar, uh, D-O-N-N-I-E-E-I-C-H-A-R, um, Purchase the book and read it for yourself. It has good pictures. Um, It has alongside the Diatlov story, uh, just Donnie's journey into um, interviewing people and what lengths he went to get all this information is just really awesome to read and really interesting. So I want to say thank you to Donnie and to everyone who has done all they could to solve this mystery. A thank you to the searchers in the past who did what they could to find the hikers. My heart goes to the families of the hikers and of course, to the hikers themselves. I hope that you all have a different perspective of this case and can walk away with an appreciation of who the hikers were and what they accomplished in their short time on this earth. Thank you to everyone for listening. I know it took a while for me to get this out, but this is all new to me and I'm fitting this into my busy life. Um, I'm really grateful for any and all listens, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let me know what you think. I really want to get feedback. I want to know... You know, I don't want anything, like, crazy negative, but I'd like to know if there's something good, (laughs) or something you like about it, Um, or maybe something that you're like, I would really like it, but maybe if you did this a little different. Um, I can use uh, some good constructive criticism. Um, So, but be gentle. Um, If you like this case... Uh, leave me a comment or message on Instagram or Facebook at rambling Ronnie podcast or Twitter at rambling Ronnie RONI. If you really like this case, leaving a review on wherever you listen to this would have really helped me out so much. So thank you guys so much. Uh, please uh, let everyone know if you like this episode, please follow me and um, I hope you all just do the best you can do every day. Try to make every day better and stay tuned for the next episode. I will be posting what I will be doing next. Um, And if you have any case suggestions, also please let me know. Again, follow me on social medias. Uh, Thank you all. Take care.